Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Did you know that today, February 27th, is National Protein Day? In order to celebrate, I am offering 10% off of all Just Ingredient protein powders and 30% off our seasonal pumpkin spice protein powder. Today only. Made with all real whole food ingredients, Just Ingredients protein powder contains five protein sources for easy digestion and an amazing taste. Made with 100% grass-fed, non-denatured whey, organic pea protein, organic pumpkin seed protein, organic chia seed protein, and collagen, we bring the highest quality protein to every batch. Just Ingredients is committed to its ingredients and only uses the highest quality natural ingredients that come from the earth. Just Ingredients protein powder is naturally sweetened and flavored with real foods and contains no artificial dyes, chemicals, or sugar alcohols. So if you want a delicious tasting, high protein, low calorie protein powder, make sure to stock up with 10% off today. Shop our sale today only at www.justingredients.us. Once again, that's justingredients.us. Elizabeth Parsons, best known on Instagram as Purely Parsons, is a follower of Christ, wife, and mother of five. She worked as a pediatric RN in the hospital setting for nine years before coming home full-time in 2020. She is a voice in the health and wellness space and is passionate about empowering individuals to take charge of their health and the health of their families. She loves using her experience both as a mom and nurse to educate others to pursue natural alternatives that support the body's ability to heal. Visit her website, purelyparsons.com, to explore all her resources and shop her 100% organic elderberry syrup kits. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I am really excited because our guest, I feel like I know her from following her on Instagram. I feel like we're friends, even though we just met right now for the first time. We've DM'd and things like that back and forth, but I actually have never met her until today. And so welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Like I said, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. It is such an honor to be here. I love following you. And I loved when you were pregnant and gave birth to twins, but you didn't know you were giving birth to twins. And so I'm so excited for you to share that story. But before you share that story, will you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background in the health industry? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, if you aren't, if you don't follow me or you don't know me, I'm Elizabeth Parsons. I um, started sharing my life publicly um, on Instagram in 2019. And um, I spoke on a lot of different topics, um, the uh, medical freedom and natural remedies is is kind of my thing. I, I stick to the natural remedies, but I share about a plethora of things. I have five kiddos um, and we homeschool and it's just fun to share my passions there. And um, I am traditionally trained as a pediatric nurse. And so I think that kind of comes into play when people um, find that out um, because I, I have a unique perspective, right? So I have been in the hospital setting and I've been in the Western medicine setting. And then I also have this kind of um, passion of also appreciating holistic remedies and you know looking at the body as a whole um, instead of just treating symptoms and covering symptoms. And so 
that's something I'm very passionate about. Um, I, like I said, have five kiddos and my husband and I um, have been married for almost 14 years. And so we have a small little homestead um, here in Texas. And so, yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Well, I love learning from you because like you said, you have the Western background of being the pediatric RN, but then you also look at the whole body. And so I like seeing both sides that you um, incorporate into your stuff that you teach. So, well, I'm going to ask you lots of questions on different topics, but I first want to start with the story of your twins and talk to you about natural birth. So will you just tell people that little story that happened? Okay. I'm going to have to condense this because I've done whole podcasts on this. It is, it's quite the story. It's not something that you hear about every day. Um, so I got pregnant with our fourth um, child in 2020 and it was right at the height of everything that was happening and you know the world was shutting down and i had always had i don't like the term natural childbirth um because all birth is natural um unmedicated i've always had unmedicated births but i knew this time around just from my past experiences i knew that i wanted a home birth this was going to be my first home birth and especially just because of the climate of the world. And so it was an amazing pregnancy. Um, there were no complications. I'm very blessed to have good pregnancies. I won't say easy pregnancies, but I'm very blessed to have uncomplicated pregnancies. And so I had a midwife and um, got regular care throughout my whole pregnancy. And I'm like, you know, we've never met in person. I'm tall and I'm broad. And so I carry my babies um, like I'm just not a small person. And so <laughs> Um, I, I usually do measure a little bit farther along than than most people, um, but there wasn't anything that was like glaringly like, are you pregnant with twins type deal, you know, and so everything seemed very normal and um, right up until the end I started to get really uncomfortable my um, I had some edema like some swelling in my ankles which i'd never had before. And I was just so uncomfortable um, and approaching 40 weeks, I, I told my midwife, I was like, like, we would know, right? If there was two in there, like you would feel two, you would hear two. She's like, yeah, like I, I'd be able to hear him at some point. Um, and I never got an ultrasound that that's probably, you know, something <laughs> that played into it, but I just didn't want to deal with the hospital. And but towards the end, um, she was like, you know what, just go get an ultrasound, just just like ease your mind. So the day before I went into labor, I went and I got an ultrasound and they only saw one baby. And wow. looking back on it, it was just a God thing. I just wasn't supposed to know because I think about the way that birth is treated in the US and especially when you're birthing multiples. Um, I'm, not just, I'm not downplaying that there can be things that happen and issues that happen, but I think overall in general, uncomplicated pregnancies, even multiple pregnancies, um, when somebody's carrying multiples, it's generally like a, a very, it's something that doesn't need to be intervened upon the way that we do in the US. I will just leave it at that. And so anyway, I'm just very thankful that it happened the way that it did, because I don't know that I would have gotten the birth that I got if we had known before. So the next day I went into labor at 40 weeks and I didn't know that there was two in there at that point either. Labor progressed and I have my whole labor story on my on my page because there's a lot of different details that went into it but um, i ended up delivering um a home birth in the water and six minutes later i thought i was delivering the placenta and out came another baby wow and 
both both boys were breech as well, which is a variation of normal. They were frank breech. Um, so there's footling breech, which is where their feet come first, which can can pose some complications. They were frank breech, so their bottoms came first. And it's not something that many um, Western trained OBs um, are familiar with how to handle. But my midwife, she rocked it. She knew what to do, and it was it was fine. There was no there was no issues. Wow, so. that is incredible. I can't even imagine what were you thinking when a second baby came out? <laughs> like, how do you even process that? It was it was wild. I just remember like looking down and her, I remember her saying, we have a surprise twin. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Because we had like asked, like, are you sure there's not two? And I had asked the ultrasound, we had got an ultrasound. I'd asked her like, you'd be able to see two, right? Like, she's like, oh yeah. I just, there's nothing that can prepare you for a moment like that. And I just remember looking up at my husband, like, what are we gonna do? Like (laughs) most people have time, you know, to prepare for twins. And um, here we are. Now we just went from three children to now five. um, And it was just, it was wild. (laughs) That is so crazy. So exciting though. I remember following along on Instagram and it was really fun just watching it all. And everybody was in shock, just like you were. But I want to ask you about natural birth or giving birth at home. What made you want to have a natural birth? And did you have medicated births before? Or did you, you told me that they were all unmedicated, right? Right. Yeah, no, I've, I've had all of my births have been unmedicated, but the first three births were inside of a hospital. And I think the reason why I started out in a hospital was just because it was like, I would, I had a traditional, you know, nursing background and I was, this was back in 2013 and I was still very much newly on my, my health journey, my holistic health journey. And so I was still learning a lot and I just kind of, I probably doubted myself a little bit. So that's kind of why I chose the route that I did back then was just the first time mom, just in case want to be, you know, want to be as cautious as possible. And so I started out in the hospital and was able to, I I knew that I wanted an unmedicated birth. And there's some, there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, I think the main one being that, you know, the way that we are designed, women are designed to give birth and we were created brilliantly and we are so capable of doing it and we're told our bodies are broken and you know this or that and and all of these things need to be intervened upon but really if if we're just left to kind of do what's physiologically normal it's such a beautiful process and I, and again I'm not saying that there's never a time and a place for western medicine there is and I recognize that but for women who are low risk this is absolutely something that can be done with as little intervention as you want. Um, And so that was kind of what I wanted. I just, I I researched a lot. I had watched a documentary um, that had a profound impact on me, um, The Business of Being Born. Have you ever seen that? I haven't, no, I'll have to go watch it. It's an amazing documentary. They did a a sequel called The Business of Birth Control, I think is what it's called. But anyway, The Business of Being Born, they just kind of take you through birth in the US and kind of what it looks like in the hospital and the cascade of interventions. And so it was it was pivotal in my journey. And so I knew like, okay, I want to try and do this with as little as interventions as possible. And so that's kind of why I started doing unmedicated births. And then I feel like after you do one, you're like, 
I, this is amazing. Like you see all of the, you see everything that happens and you, you see why people do it. And so I've just had them like that ever since. That's incredible. And kudos to you. I have six kids and none of them were unmedicated. So we'll just put that out there right now, but well, that's okay. You know, and that's, and that, that's something too, is, you know, how amazing that we can we can do the research for ourselves and we can choose right? right like i love birth i love empowering women to know that their bodies can birth unmedicated if that's something that you desire so right yeah exactly and now knowing all the things that i do know i might if i had a child today which is not going to happen i'm 47 years old i would probably try unmedicated to tell you the truth but i wasn't far enough along on my health journey back when i had my kids to do it so anyways are there other benefits though to having an unmedicated birth than just feeling empowered and seeing what your body can do on its own yeah there's there's a lot of a lot of benefits um faster recovery time is one with natural birth, you know, you're not given the the epidural and um, you can get up and move around. And so right after the baby's born, you can get up and walk around and um, just faster recovery time in general. And there's there's a a lot of different things that go into that. But since you can feel, um, you're less likely to tear during pushing. Um, And so obviously not tearing will give you faster recovery time. And like I said, ability to move around, that's huge for me because um, you want to use your body, you want to use gravity to help your body move that baby down and, and moving around and getting in different positions can be super, super helpful to prevent labor from stalling um, as to where if you're if you're numb from the waist down, you're not going to be able to get up and do that. And so you're, you're kind of working against the natural process of how this is supposed to happen. And some people report shorter pushing times. I know that's not always the case. I've always pushed like less than 10 minutes to get my babies out. Um, so a lot of people do report shorter pushing times, but for sure more effective pushing because you, again, you can feel and you don't have to have that kind of typical coached pushing that we see um, in the westernized model of birth where they're having to count for you and tell you, hey, you're having a contraction. You know, Some women describe just feeling pressure with an epidural and they can still feel the contractions, but some women can't. And so just more effective pushing, I would say. Um, and then just a decreased risk for overall interventions, because when you have an epidural, that's it's kind of what I like. I call it the cascade of interventions. Um, oftentimes they'll see baby will start to decel and a, a number of different things can happen. And then eventually, you know, like, OK, it's stalled out. We're going to call a C-section. So there's just there's there's just a lot of interventions that can come into play when you're not able to get up and move around and use your body as a tool to help your baby come down. So that makes sense. Do you think that there's a lot of misconceptions or myths, let's say, about unmedicated births? I think and, you know, this isn't unmedicated birth specifically, but I think just the overall narrative that you can't do it. You can't um, you can't birth unmedicated because X, Y, Z, like insert whatever here, right? Like your pelvis is too small. Your baby is too big. Uh, it's your first baby. You're having twins or the baby is in the wrong position. Like all of these things that women are told are so untrue. Like your pelvis is not too small to birth a baby. You know, we have hormones that happen during birth that help your pelvis relax and open that up. You know, I've, I'm living proof that you can birth twins 
um, vaginally and not just vaginally unmedicated. Um, you can birth a breech baby unmedicated. I've done it, you know, and so all of these things that we are told they're, they're just not true. And so I think that would be like one of the biggest misconceptions. Okay. So if I have listeners who are listening to this that are like, Oh, maybe I'll try unmedicated. Is there anything that they need to be doing differently during pregnancy to either prepare or maybe things they need to stop doing during pregnancy? Like where, or where do they start? Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. You can't, go into birth without having trained for birth. It's kind of like the mindset of training for a marathon. You're not going to get up on the day of the marathon and run and be successful. You have to prepare and natural birth, unmedicated birth. It's 90% mental um, because when you're in that moment during labor, and you're in transition or whatever, pushing, nobody is coming in to save you. You're doing that yourself. And so you have to be prepared. And um, so prepping for me is super important. Um, The way that I help mentally prepare is um, listening to positive and affirmative birth stories, huge. Like to be able to listen to other women who have gone before you and done it and have positive things to say about it. like. Surrounding yourself with negativity is not going to do well for you to go into it and have a positive experience. And so um, creating that kind of birth bubble, if you will, is super important. I loved listening to there's a podcast called The Birth Hour, and it's literally just birth stories. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of the women do um, home births, but there's like all different kinds of births. And it was just I would just walk my driveway and it was just so nice to just listen to all of the women on that on that podcast. Um, I would say preparing your body as well. So mentally preparing, but then also physically preparing because this is this is a physical thing that you're going to be doing. So um, making sure that you're eating right and make sure making sure that you're moving. I know it's really hard, especially towards the end to like keep moving, but even just walking like anybody can get up and walk. So moving your body, nourishing your body and your baby um, is super important. Now, practically, the the only things that I could think of that I did was I do drink red raspberry leaf tea starting in the third trimester it's supposed to like tone and strengthen the uterine muscles um i can't say whether or not that i've done that with all of my pregnancies (laughs) so i can't say like i have experience not doing it um, but all of my births have been great Um, and then i do eat dates i don't know if you've heard of that eating dates um after 36 weeks to um help with shortened labors and stuff like that again the evidence on that there's not like super concrete evidence but i'm like a couple dates aren't going to hurt. So I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's so good to know. Would you suggest people taking birthing classes or uh, like learning different breathing techniques? What else would you suggest? Yeah. Yeah. I think it is super important. And that's another thing you have to, you have to figure out what's important to you, right? Because there's so many different avenues of support that, you can explore when you are preparing for a birth. The the most important thing is to have a supportive provider because if your provider is not in line with your wishes, it's just gonna go off the it's gonna go off the rails from the beginning. So you really need to find a provider and they work for you. So interview them, interview multiple ones and um, find one that really aligns with your values. And as well as well as your partner, you know, like if your if your spouse is not kind of like 
totally on board with what you want to do, you guys need to have a conversation about that because <laughs> your spouse is going to hopefully be there to be the one to support you. So you guys need to be on the same page as well. But yeah, a birth course can be super, super helpful. I would say um, it really depends on, again, the type of birth that you're wanting. I um, have a couple birth courses that I love and could recommend, but for me, with my first birth, I took like the hospital natural birth course and it was trash. <laughs> like we learned absolutely nothing. It was like a six week course where you go for like an hour at night or something. And you know, we're like first time parents, but it was just the things that they taught were just like not even really related to natural birth or unmedicated birth. And that's probably not the case everywhere. But for me, it was just a waste of time. So I know that there's courses online that are much more high quality and you can do them in the comfort of your own home so i know um, pain-free birth has a great um, natural birth course and then the other one that i recommend is happy home birth academy and that's more geared for home birth um so yeah if if a, if a birth course is something that you want to invest in i think it can be it can be really helpful and then also a doula i never had a doula but doulas are kind of just like another support person for women who are wanting to have unmedicated births and they're super knowledgeable and are worth their weight in gold for women who feel like they need them. So that would be another thing that you can look into. Yeah, so good to know. There are so many amazing resources online. And so mm -hmm. people that want to do a natural birth, unmedicated birth, home birth, there's so many resources online. So go check those out. Um, but I do have a question about your twins because you did do a water birth for them. So why did you choose a water birth for them? I think um, initially I had wanted a water birth for all four of, of my pregnancies um, from the start, but it's very hard to find a hospital that will allow you to do a water birth because the the studies, the, the hospitals haven't really caught up with the recommended practices or, you know, like the studies that show that it's actually safe. And so it's really hard to find a hospital that will allow you to birth in the water it's hard to find a hospital that actually has tubs just point blank. Like the first two hospitals that I birthed at didn't even have labor tubs. And the reason I chose the third hospital I did, I would have been, I would have been doing a birth center for all of my subsequent births after my first, but insurance, it was like an insurance thing. Mm -hmm. And it, that's a whole nother topic for another day. But um, I was really sad to not be able to do birth centers. But for my third birth, I was like, I'm, I have to find a hospital that has tubs. Like, there's just no way I'm I'm gonna stand in the shower because water is such a huge pain tool, and that's why that's initially why I wanted. I knew that water helped with pain management, and just being able to like <laughs> the, the first two births, you like you're standing in the shower stall, like trying to like you know make the water stream hit your where you're pain where you're having pain. It just is just not the same as immersing yourself in water, and so. My third birth, I found a hospital that had a tub, but they wouldn't let you deliver in it. And so I got all the way up to transition and started to push in the tub. And then my midwife was like, you need to get out and come to the bed. And I just, I, I just, I so desired this, this water birth. And um, it was kind of something I, once I, once I got to this fourth pregnancy, it, you know, there, there's benefits to having a water birth, of course. But it, I think at that point for me, it was just like, I just want to do this because I don't know how many more birth experiences I'm going to get. And like, I would just love to be able to have a water birth. I just want that experience. Um, and I'm just so thankful that I did, but outside of like personal preference and obviously 
the pain management aspect of it, I think is a big reason why women do it. Um, there's lower rates of episiotomies in water births and higher birth satisfaction rates. Actually, there's a lot of studies on that as well. And then higher um, success of vaginal delivery. And I think a lot of that just centers around the fact that it's such a good pain management tool. Now, some women desire to get in the water and have a water birth. They get in and they hate it and then they get back out. And that's fine too. That might've happened with me, but I loved the water. I love, I love using it as a pain management tool. So I loved it. So good to know. Okay. Before we move on to another topic, is there anything that you want to tell these listeners who might be considering a home birth or an unmedicated birth? Gosh, that's, that's a loaded, a very loaded question. Um, but I think the main point that I want to get across is you're capable and you know, your body was made to do this despite what you're being told. I think the biggest piece of advice I could give you is to take ownership of your birth, um, know your non-negotiables, um, be educated about them, because in the moment it's very easy to kind of sway to what a medical provider is telling you. But if you're educated and you know your why, it's gonna help you in the moment. So research, um, remove the fear. You know, birth is not something to be fear to, to fear. It's not something to be scared of. And so when we re remove that fear, it just allows for so many more possibilities. So, well, you are incredible. Like I said, your whole story when you gave birth to the twins was so inspiring, so fascinating. So if you guys want to know more about her um, home birth with the twins, go check out her Instagram account. But thank you for sharing all of that about um, the natural birth. So with you being a pediatric RN, I know you dealt with babies and toddlers and little kids for years in Western medicine. And so I do have some questions for you. Let's go over some topics. Let's start with teething. So I know I have a lot of new moms that listen to this show. Teething is a hard one. Sometimes you don't know if they're just fussy because they're fussy for something else or they're fussy because they're teething. So what would you say symptoms of teething actually are? yeah teething is it's it's notorious right you always hear about the teething babies but some of the the most common symptoms will be um increased drooling so babies will just kind of like it's it's insane how much drool will come out of a baby's mouth when they're teething um so fussiness for sure um just kind of not acting themselves fussiness you know not just like i'm tired i need to go to sleep but just fussiness um not being able to be consoled, um, wanting to bite or suck on things. Um, a lot of times their hands or your, you know, your sleeves or whatever. Uh, trouble sleeping is a big one. Um, rubbing the ears even. You'll see babies like rub their ears when they start to teeth. Um, and in my experience, um, not high fevers, but mild fevers. So I've always been curious about that. Why does teething cause fevers? So this is actually a really heavily debated topic, not necessarily in the medical world, but in the motherhood realm, because the experts will tell you that teething does not cause fevers. Um, but I personally know many people who have experienced fevers with their teething babies, including myself. So I'm not sure if that's just like the inflammation or what, but I definitely say from an anecdotal experience, at least that mild fevers are pretty common with teething babies. So don't discredit that, you know, can there be something else that's happening? Maybe your babies just happens to be fighting off something while they're teething. Sure. I guess maybe, but like, 
Is that a coincidence that it happens every single time they're cutting a tooth? I don't know. That seems a little bit of a far stretch to me. So I would say, yeah, there, there's probably some correlation there. Um, and again, I'm not sure if that's just because of inflammation or what. Um, I haven't been able to see like any solid research on that. Okay. So I know that a lot of new moms out there, when they're teething, they'll give like Tylenol. And I know you don't love Tylenol. So what are some teething remedies that you do love? Um, yeah, I love homeopathy for teething. It has saved me with so many babies. Um, and I wish I would have found it sooner. Uh, but there's a specific remedy called Camellia, uh, and it's saved me so many sleepless nights. It's just like a little vial of, um, pre-diluted, it's a liquid dose. So you just squeeze it into their mouth. It's so easy. And the thing I love about homeopathy is, you know, you're not going to like hurt your baby by giving them too much or giving them the wrong remedy. It's just such, such a mild way to help our bodies, to support our body's homeopathy instead of working against your body's natural um, processes, kind of like mainstream, you know, over-the-counter things like Tylenol and ibuprofen. It, it works with your body. It's like a like cures like um, situation. And so I'm just such a fan. Um, and do you want like specific, uh, do you want me to tell you like specific things I do? Because there's like specific things that I use. And then there's some more general things. So yeah, no, I um, know. I know the listeners will be curious. So okay. just tell them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's tooth oil that you can get. Wellaments has a really great one. Um, and it's just kind of like a, you put it on your finger and you rub it along your baby's gums. It's um, clove based. And um, I know that a company called Earthly Wellness also has a tincture called Teeth Tamer that's super helpful. Um, and I've used that and it works so well. Um, I love freezing washcloths. So just those little soft baby washcloths, just put some um, clean water on that and pop it in the freezer and let your baby kind of gnaw on that. And that can help to also, you know, numb the gums, but also it just feels really good to chew on that. And you can even soak them in chamomile tea, which is really calming and anti-inflammatory. Um, so soak it in uh, chamomile tea, pop it in the freezer and you'll have it ready to go. And those are super easy to prepare in advance. My number one thing I did was always just let them nurse on demand. Obviously, if you're not breastfeeding, that's going to be a little bit difficult. But um, if you are nursing, let them nurse as much as they want. My babies always nurse more when they're teething because it's comforting. You know, yeah. it's, it's comforting when you're hurting. Um, and then uh, diluted essential oils. So um, I would do things like Roman chamomile and lavender and copaiba rolled along the jawline. You got to dilute all those in like a little roller bottle and just roll them along the jawline. I know a lot of women like amber teething necklaces. Um, I never personally use those, but I know people rave about them. Um, I just wasn't ever comfortable having something like around their neck um, like that. So, um, but yeah, th those are the main ones that I use. Those are such great suggestions. And I love homeopathics as well. They are so commonly used in Europe. And I wish in America they would become more mainstream because they are in Europe and I don't understand why they aren't well, here instead, yet. But. Instead, we're going to try and ban them in America. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's a whole nother topic, huh? Oh my goodness. Okay. Another topic about little babies that I get a lot is thrush, actually. So what is thrush? What causes it? Thrush is, oh man, it's such a pesky infection to deal with. Um, and anyone who has dealt with it I just commend you for your sanity because <laughs> it can be really, really hard to get rid of. So thrush is actually a, um, can't, it comes from the candida fungus. So it's a yeast 
And it most often presents in the mouth, but it can come and present in any other part of the body, um, like the skin or even the genital area. So it's just an overgrowth of this candida fungus. Um, it's really common to see thrush post antibiotics. So whether the mom is breastfeeding and took antibiotics or if the baby has been given a round of antibiotics, it kind of disrupts that uh, microbiome and that balance in the body. And so you'll see the, the, the candida kind of take over. And so it's, it's really common to see that after an antibiotic. So what is the Western um, typical prescription for it? Usually like antifungal uh, creams or prescriptions like Nystatin is a really common one or um, fluconazole is another uh, antifungal. So just over the counter or prescription medications, not over the counter. Um, okay, so do you like those prescriptions or would you rather treat naturally? I typically start with my kiddos, at least I, I tend to try to start with more holistic and natural remedies with anything. And then if needed, you know, th there's a time and place again for Western medicine. So if needed, we can go that route. But I always tend to, to start more natural. OK, so if someone's listening and they are dealing with thrush, what are some of the natural things that they could try? Diet would be a huge one, especially if you're a breastfeeding mother. Um, you can change your diet to help with thrush. So eliminating sugar and dairy, these are things, yeast feeds off of sugar, right? So if we decrease these things in our diet, it can really help. Um, but also consuming a quality probiotic um, through your diet is best. I always recommend trying to, when we're speaking of supplements, there's obviously a time and a place for supplements. And I, I have supplements that I love and use in my day-to-day -day life, but if we can get it from our diet, that's obviously best. So with a probiotic, things like kefir, uh, sauerkraut and yogurt, um, those are all great sources of probiotics. Um, but then obviously, if you need to supplement, you can um, and probiotics can help um, kind of balance that microbiome as well. Um, when you're if you are breastfeeding and you're dealing with thrush, leaving your nipples open to air, which sounds a little bit odd, but if you can leave them open to air and kind of let that dry out and even get outside, like maybe not if you live in the suburbs and you have neighbors, but if you can get outside and get some sun on, on your chest, that'll really, really help. Now for inside, if you're talking about inside the baby's mouth, where those like, you know, cottage cheese patches mm -hmm. look like, you can do diluted apple cider vinegar. So I make the, I would make these wipes and um, it's like one part apple cider vinegar to four part water. So it's super diluted and just kind of swab that around inside the mouth. Another remedy you can try is coconut oil. So if you, coconut oil is a natural antifungal. Um, so you can apply that topically to lesions or you can do it inside the mouth um, or use like a swab to apply it inside the mouth. If the mom has thrush inside of her mouth, Usually it's, you see it in the baby's mouth and on the mom's nipple, but if you have it in your mouth and you're an adult, you can even do like oil pulling with the coconut oil where you like swish it around and spit it out. Um, and then if none of those have worked, because again, thrush is very hard to get rid of, you can also try colloidal silver, spraying it on your nipples and then even like putting some in the baby's mouth. Yeah, I actually was just going to ask you about colloidal silver, silver because we just started selling it and it is antimicrobial and so it can mm -hmm. kill fungus. And so actually I've heard amazing things about colloidal silver for uh, thrush. So if you're a mom out there listening to this, try colloidal silver because I've heard so many good things about it. 
So thank you for all of those ideas. Of course. Okay, so let's move on to another topic that all new moms have dealt with, diaper rash. (laughs) So what is diaper rash and what is causing it? Yeah, that's, that is, that is something I, I don't think any mom can say that their baby has never had a diaper rash, even just a mild one, because it's, it's, it's a very common thing. Um, and the, you know, we want to help our babies. We want to relieve their pain, but I would say the most important thing is to address the root cause. If your baby is getting chronic diaper rash, that's not normal, right? Um, frequent diaper rashes, it, we should take that as a sign that the body is trying to communicate something to us. Uh, whether that's something environmental, um, you know, laundry detergent or something that is in our environment that's causing that or internal, something dietary um, that is causing these rashes to come up. We can treat the symptom all day, right? We can put creams and lotions and whatever we want. But if we're not addressing what's causing them, then we're not truly helping them to heal. So that's something I'm very passionate about. Um, Some common root causes of diaper rash, uh, and this is obviously not all inclusive. There's so many different reasons for it, but um, so like I said, detergents, so sensitivity to chemicals or um, fragrances and detergents, Um, sensitivity to something mom is eating in the diet, um, or even the baby, if the baby's um, taking solids. Um, some common things, if baby is taking solids, are acidic foods. So think like citruses, tomatoes, strawberries, um, and even conventional grains and conventional dairy can be um, the culprit of rashes. And then also what you're putting on them, think about it every single day, diapers and wipes. There are so many chemicals. It's it's so sad. <laughs> what what is allowed to be sold to to literally put on your baby's private parts um so these chemical laden disposable diapers um and wipes so i would find maybe a cleaner option of that and then also just uh you know things that can cause a rash or be you know if the baby's in a diaper for too long and it's dirty or um, a yeast infection or even antibiotic use like we had talked about with fresh um, that can also um, cause diaper rash so Yeah, I know when I breastfed um, a couple of my kids, if I had dairy, they had the worst diaper rash. So I just knew, oh, yep, that's from the dairy. Um, But then also about diapers and wipes and all the creams and things out there. Like you said, it's so sad that they have parabens and phthalates and formaldehyde releasers and talc and all these different things in them. And thankfully, I feel like we're getting more and more baby companies that are providing better choices. And sometimes I wonder why in the world are we providing all these better choices for babies, but not for teenagers yet, but that's a whole nother story, (laughs) but I am glad to see at least they're um, getting better for the babies. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is, you know, how great is it that enough people are waking up to this and saying that they want better for their babies, you know? And so we just have to keep making our voices heard through our spending habits. And eventually these companies are going to be like, oh, you know, people don't want to put propylene glycol on their baby's bottom, you know? So, well, I've shared this on Instagram before, but it was when Johnson and Johnson's revenues decreased by 20% that they finally were like, Oh, we better reformulate our products because people aren't buying us anymore. So Mm -hmm. anyways, okay. Back to diaper rash. What are some of your favorite natural remedies for uh, diaper rash? Because I'm sure you have some. Yeah, for sure. My first go to would be, if possible, do diaper free time. So not having a diaper on them and being able to like lay a mat down if that's possible. If you can get outside, I know that's not always a possibility, but if you can get outside and let the sun 
um, do its work um, and just get some fresh air down there and be able to kind of dry everything out. That's super helpful. But obviously, that's not going to be something that you're going to do all day long. That's not <laughs> that is not realistic. Um, but a little bit of diaper free time every day is great. Um, but for uh, remedies that you can use, I love doing coconut oil or even olive oil. It's a little bit more messy, but coconut oil with like a drop of, you can do like lavender essential oil, which is super calming. But if you don't want to do any essential oils, just do some straight up coconut oil. It's as simple as that. Um, you can do a, like a soothing bath. So a little bit of baking soda, a splash of apple cider vinegar, and just put them in the bath and let um, that be soothing for them. Breast milk is actually a really great way to help a rash, unless it's a yeast rash. So if you know the difference, you'll want to kind of distinguish that, but don't use breast milk on a on a yeast rash because it's going to feed off of that sugar. Um, and then another one I love is either tallow balm or calendula salve. Um, calendula salve is something that I kind of use in my diaper bag just as a natural um, diaper rash remedy. So I would say coconut oil, calendula salve, um, or, uh, tallow balm would be like something you can have on hand in your purse. Yeah. I used coconut oil all the time with my kids, but yeah. what do you think about colloidal silver for diaper rash? You know, I've never needed to use it, but I would say if it's something that's like really bad, colloidal silver is something I recommend literally every mom have in their cabinet it's not something i personally reach for right away because it's very powerful right it's it's very effective and so i try to um preserve that for sometimes where i'm like okay i i can't really like there's nothing else for me to do right now so i'm gonna kind of it's kind of my big guns one but yeah for sure if there's something that's really um what's the word i'm looking for stubborn yeah there you go <laughs> yeah if you have a diaper rash that's very stubborn then colloidal silver is a great option. Yeah. I have a lot of new moms that have told me they have loved it for diaper rash. So just thought I'd ask you about that. Okay. Let's do another topic. Are you ready for another topic? Let's do it. Something else that uh, moms deal with. How about hand, foot, and mouth? Oh, oh my so, goodness. Everyone, everyone listening just cringed. Right. I know. Okay. So once again, what is hand, foot, and mouth and what causes it? Yeah. Okay. Hand, foot, and mouth is um, a part of the enterovirus family, and it's most common in children under five. Um, this is not something that you're going to see in adults very frequently um, because of the way that it's spread. It's spread through close contact, um, saliva, and even fecal matter, um, and even just in the air as well. Um, and most symptoms of hand, foot, and mouth, even though it is absolutely miserable, they will self-resolve within seven to 10 days. But there's definitely some things that we can do to help our little ones um, when they when they get it. Okay, before we first say what you do to help, um, what are some symptoms? Like how would a new mom know that their child has this? Yeah, hand, foot and mouth is kind of like a progressive illness. So you, it's gonna start out kind of um, like a cold, like you're gonna see a fever, um, just kind of a general malaise, just feeling unwell, uh, which with kids, it's kind of hard to know, to distinguish that, right? And so you might not really know that it's hand, foot and mouth at first, but then they're gonna develop loss of appetite, sore throat. So those are kind of like all of the initial things that will happen. So it, it might just be mistaken as like, they're just sick, you know, they just have a cold or whatever. Um, but a couple of days later, um, you'll see these mouth sores or um, skin rashes start to develop. And it can be so painful um, and they can even like blister up. So it's just it's really not a fun, a 
a fun one <laughs> to experience. Um, I've had adults get hand, foot and mouth and, and tell me like it was one of the most miserable experiences of their life. Yeah. But our children, they handle it a lot better than we do, um, but it's still not fun for them. So um, you'll see these blisters, these blisters uh, mainly predominantly on the hands and the feet and in the mouth, which is why it's called hand, foot and mouth, not to be confused with hoof and mouth, which is like a, a cattle disease. It's not the same thing. <laughs> So really, it's hard for parents to tell they have it until they actually see the little sores and blisters. Right. Okay. All right. So let's talk about things that they can do to help the kids when they have hand, foot, and mouth. What do you do? Well, my kids have actually never had hand, foot, and mouth. I'm like, where's some wood? Let me know. I know. know. You, You know what? Mine never had it either. So I'm like you same thing but it's something that i get asked about quite often so that's why i was like i will have the pediatric rn tell us about it yes for sure i've seen it i've seen cases and i've I've seen what helps and what doesn't um so there's not really a specific treatment for hand foot and mouth if you take your child to the doctor they're just going to say rotate tylenol and ibuprofen and keep them comfortable um but there are some things that we can do um and things that i know that have been successful for moms that have experienced it um again if there is a fever present i actually don't know if we've touched on fevers yet but i really don't like to suppress a fever because fevers are our body's way of doing what they need to do to help us and so when a child gets a fever we freak out right and so in the hospital we have orders to treat fevers of 100.4 and higher. 100.4 to me with my kids, my kids are still up and running around usually. Like it's not, you know, it's not, it's very mild. And I just think that when we are suppressing these fevers in our kids, it's really the body is saying, I'm doing what I need to do. I'm heating the body up. I'm getting rid of whatever pathogen it is that's causing this. And then we say, you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to suppress this. And then you're, you're, you're inhibiting the body's ability to do what it needs to do. And that's why the fever comes back because the Tylenol clears and then the body's like, all right, let's do this. And then you're like, no, you know, it's just this like constant back and forth. And so I, again, err on the side of let's trust the body. And obviously there are times where you need to intervene, but, um, so if there is a fever present with hand, foot and mouth, just let it ride and comfort measures are really a lot of um, illnesses that child that children will experience are really just a lot of comfort measures. And so with hand, foot and mouth, um, cool rags can really feel great on those lesions. Um, A warm detox bath, not hot, um, but a warm detox bath can be super soothing or even like a colloidal oatmeal bath. Um, So kind of similar to chicken pox, we recommend doing colloidal oatmeal baths. Um, Popsicles for in the mouth because a lot of kids don't want to eat or drink when they have hand, foot, and mouth because it's very painful again. So having something cool like that, like popsicles um, or even like warm tea. And there's specific teas that you can make that are actually gonna help. They're antimicrobial. So like with honey and things like lemon balm is a great tea that you can make. And then even Rubois tea is a really great one. Um, they're antimicrobial and can can help soothe those sore blisters. Okay. so. Such good advice. I know my listeners are going to ask me, wait, what does she mean by detox bath? What am I putting in this bath for to make it a detox bath? So what do you like to put in yours? There's a lot of different recipes for detox baths that if you just look online, just Google like detox bath. Typically, my recipe is Epsom salt or magnesium flakes. 
um, which Epsom salt usually has magnesium in it. So just find a good Epsom salt that you like. Bentonite clay is a great thing to use, apple cider vinegar. Um, and then if you wanna use essential oils, you can put some of those in, in as well. So some combination of that is usually what I'm doing with a detox bath and detox baths, it sounds kind of like intense. It's really not, it's, it's a natural and gentle way to help our body exactly what it says, detoxify. I do detox baths on my kiddos, not just when they're sick, but just to kind of help combat things that we come into just living in this world, right? Pollution and chlorine and bacteria. Um, it just kind of helps the body to open those pathways and be able to, to detox, but especially in times of sickness. Okay. So now you've got me thinking about detox baths and everything that listeners are going to ask. So do you do a detox bath for every illness? Every time your kids have an illness, you put them in a detox bath. I do. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, use your discretion as, as a mom, but I, I see the benefit of them and I see how much quicker my kids um, feel better when I do them versus when I don't, you know, there's times where I just, whatever, for whatever reason, I don't think about it, or I'm just busy and we don't, and it takes them a lot longer to, to get over it. And so I do see that it, the benefits in it. And there's, you know, that if you look at the ingredients and what these different ingredients, how they help the body, it makes sense. You know, apple cider vinegar helps restore pH balance. Um, the magnesium will help to replenish minerals. These things help stimulate blood flow um, and oxygen and circulation and promoting cellular repair. So it's, it's an easy and simple thing that we can do at home. Okay. So I know people are going to ask me, can I do this at any age? So could a newborn do a detox bath or do you wait? Like what age? I don't do detox baths on my newborns. That's just a personal decision. I would for like babies under like six ish months old, I tend to just maybe do like baking soda and some apple cider vinegar, just something a little bit more um, mild solely because of the dehydration factor. It's so much easier for little ones to get dehydrated than it is for an, an older kid or even an adult. Um, so you can definitely do detox baths on babies. I would just make sure it's super diluted um, and see how your, your child reacts and don't make it too hot, obviously. Um, and, you know, just try less is better at the beginning, you know, try five minutes and, you know, maybe the next time bump it up to 10, you know, you, they don't have to stay in there for an hour at a time. So yeah. Well, and I know some people suggest if they're under a year just to do like a detox foot bath. Like they don't have to do oh, yeah. their whole body. So I know that's a way you can do it also. But yeah. when people ask me about detox baths, they always say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to either use the wrong ingredients or mix the wrong things or overdose on too many of, you know, some certain ingredient. So you can't really do that, right? No, it's so, it's, it's such an easy thing to do, but you know, the, the overwhelm of parents, like I hear you, I get that. And that's, we actually have detox baths. Um, we made like detox bath kits and have those available because it just takes the guesswork out for people who are like, I don't understand how to do this. Um, that's why we created the detox bath kit that we, that we have, uh, just to kind of make it easy, but yeah, no, it's, you're, you're not going to hurt you're not going to hurt anything. <laughs> putting okay. putting a cup of something versus half a cup when you're talking about a huge bathtub, it's so diluted. So no, you'll okay. be fine. Okay. Well, back to hand, foot and mouth, because we sort of got um, sidetracked there with detox baths. 
do you like certain things like um, elderberry or quercetin for hand, foot, and mouth? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. We did get, de- we did get very, very <laughs> much derailed there, didn't we? Um, yeah. Elderberry is um, an antiviral herb and it is a powerhouse. I'm such a proponent for elderberry. Um, and so it's, it's great for something like hand, foot, and mouth. Um, so quercetin actually belongs to a group of plant pigments called flavonoids. And that is what is going to give fruits and flowers and vegetables their colors. Um, but it's also a great antioxidant. And we know antioxidants, if you've heard anything about antioxidants, we know that they help reduce free radicals in the body. And in this case, uh, hand, foot and mouth, it's been shown to prevent viral replication. So lots of words there, but basically it helps your body to prevent this virus from replicating. And so you can actually get quercetin from food. Again, like I said earlier, it's always best to get things from food first if you can, and then if not, go to a supplement. But things that are high in quercetin are capers, onions, apples, and elderberries, actually. So there you go. Double (laughs) reason for elderberry. Yeah. Those are such good tips. Thank you so much. Okay, I know that you on Instagram love sharing about living a healthy lifestyle. You have kids. You've dealt with lots of kids as a pediatric RN. So if someone is just starting a health journey or wants to start a health journey, where do you suggest they start? Yeah, I I think it really depends on their why, right? We all have we all have our reasons for why we start our health journeys. I know that your journey looks different from mine and um, we, we all have reasons. And so some people are kind of thrust into it due to health concerns while other people kind of maybe get to kind of tiptoe in. And so, but just as a general statement uh, for, for people who are looking to kind of start their journey, I would say um, start with removing things. You know, we get so overwhelmed with like, you need this, you need this, you need this, add this. But really, if we can just take a step back and remove things that are injuring us, because you can throw an air filter in your home, but if you're still like lighting candles and using artificial fragrances um, and using cleaners, cleaners that have all of these terrible ingredients in them, you know, you're kind of just, it's, it's not really doing much. Okay. So I would step back and remove things um, and replace them with even cheaper options. Like all of your cleaners in your home can basically be replaced with just some lemon and vinegar, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so just simple swaps like that or in the in the laundry room, remove dryer sheets, which are terrible for our health and just use dryer balls. It's so much cheaper. Um, so things like that, um, can be really helpful to not get that overwhelm because you can really jump headfirst into the holistic space and it's very noisy. You're gonna get things from all different sides, like we're all dying and we're, you know, this causes cancer and and it, you know, there there's truth in a lot of it, but it, it's a lot of noise and it can be very overwhelming for people. But another thing I would say is to start reading labels, start learning how to read everything, everything in your home that has an ingredient label, flip it over and read it and start educating yourself. Because, you know, I guarantee you're not going to recognize a lot of the ingredients on the back of that label and just look them up, just Google it and see what it says. What is that ingredient? What is propylene glycol? Why is that not so great to have in this diaper cream or my makeup or, you know, just just start researching and reading your ingredients. And for food specifically, I would say, 
you know, we have a lot of food like products in America. And so we're, we're really being sold a lie of, of what true health actually is. So for food, in my opinion, I would say the less ingredients on that label, the better think whole foods, you know, an apple, it's just an apple, like there's nothing else in there. So, um, the less ingredients, the better when it comes to food, but for everything else, makeup and, and beauty products and, um, laundry and cleaners, just read your ingredients. I love it. Everything that I agree with 100%. So thank you so much for being here today. I could ask you on so many more topics. So we may have to have a part two someday. Oh, I would love that. I know my audience loves listening to pediatric doctors, pediatric nurses, um, because we all have so many questions when we're raising our kids. So thank you so much for being here. But will you tell my listeners where they can find you? Yeah, so I'm mainly on Instagram at Purely Parsons. That's where most of my content is found. I have a whole slew of highlights, just a lot of things that we talked about here today where I break down remedies one by one. And then I also have a website where we sell um, organic uh, elderberry syrup kits, detox kits, natural fragrances. Um, so that's just www.purelyparsons.com. So I always end my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? I love this question so much. Um, It's such a good one. I, and I could think of so many different words, but I think the main one that comes to mind would be gratitude. I have heard this quote and I love it. And it's always stuck with me. It says gratitude turns what we have into enough. And it's so true. We can always find something in our lives that we wish were different, especially in the culture that we live in, where we're constantly seeing other people's lives displayed. And it's really easy to rest in discontentment. But there's so there's something like so freeing about just resting in gratitude and just being thankful. Um, And there's actually studies, right, that show the impact of gratitude on our brains. So, and it also creates humility, right? When we're thankful, we're, we're humble people. And so I would say gratitude. I love that so much. I know some um, therapists even say at the end of the day, try to find five things that you're thankful for that day. And I know I did this back in my days of depression. And one lady was like, if it's only that you breathe today, be grateful for mm-hmm. that. You know, yeah. that you're still living and breathing and healthy enough to breathe. So I do love that. Gratitude is just the base of so many things. Even when you feel like you have nothing, there really are things that you can be grateful for. So absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, thank you so much for being here. It was so fun talking to you and meeting you and having you teach so many great things. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.